and welcome back to another episode or installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer, and with me today is the number one selling author in Canada. We'll get into that. <laughs> Darren, Darren McKee. How Hi there. Doing? Great How to be here. Thanks for having yeah. me. And if Darren's name sounds... Or Darren's name, his name and his voice sounds familiar. That's because you've probably heard him on what podcast do you do, Darren? The Reality Check. The Reality <laughs> the Check. Canadian yes. show that explores a wide range of controversies and curiosities with my co-hosts Adam, Christina, and Pat. There you go. Yeah, you, you you're kind of the voice of. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you recently made an appearance on our show, if I'm not mistaken. I did. Yes, I think it was. Um... 667 yeah but you weren't on it was just it was just uh no 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 i was i can't remember what happened that day but pat and christina i think yes pat and christina yes yes and uh yeah what did we talk about probably talked about my book yes (laughs) and uh probably just more general things about conspiracies and sort of stuff like that i can't quite remember exactly what we all talked about i don't think i had a specific subject i think oh no they i think they just talked to me about you know the book or something like that so so yeah so, uh, but I, I'm here to talk about your book, number one selling on Amazon.ca. Uh, you've just, yeah, you've just published a book. Uh, what, uh, what is your book? I certainly have, and thank you. Yeah, it just came out recently. It's called Uncontrollable: The Threat of Artificial Superintelligence and the Race to Save the World. Uh, by the time the listeners hear this, it should be a print and ebook that is available with an audio soon to follow. And yes, in Canada, it's a hit number one in a few different categories, one of them being artificial intelligence and then some other subcategories. Uh, the book really is trying to raise awareness of this important issue about AI. I don't know if you've heard about it, but AI is in the news a lot lately. <laughs> a little. Uh, I mean, uh, not to sort of date ourselves, but even today, uh, today, last couple of days, the chat uh, I mean, the company that owns chat, what is it? G GPT, GTP. Oh, chat GPT. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Windsor guy. So I just want to call it chat GTO, but uh, oh yes. Yeah. Chat, but uh, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's something people, a lot of people use um, and are sort of familiar with. And a lot of people are quite stressed about that, but yeah, that company, uh, they've been acquired by Microsoft and a lot of people quit or something. Is that what's going on? Or is it Google? Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, always delicate when you're talking about something currently still in the news cycle. Yeah. That's rapidly changing uh, for just a, a bit of context. So chat GPT is this a very relatively well-known chatbot language model application. It came out or a version of it came out uh, November, 2022. And here we are about a year later, there's been some improvements and it has a wide range of mm, powers and capabilities. And many people use it. I think it shot to hundred million users faster than any other uh, application or technology that's been adopted. And so it's been in the press a lot. And the company behind that is OpenAI. And OpenAI also put out GPT-2 and GPT-3 before this, uh, but ChatGPT is the one that really captured the public's imagination. Uh, OpenAI has various investors, the primary one of which is Microsoft, which mm-hmm. is putting billions of dollars into helping them mainly with uh, compute or cloud storage, um, but also for other reasons. Um, what's happened recently, uh, I won't get into too many details, but the mm-hmm. gist is 
OpenAI has uh, an atypical or very rare corporate structure. They are not a typical corporation. One might think that they're a Silicon Valley, you know, technology corporation where you put money in and hopefully you get more money out if you're an investor. But OpenAI, when it was structured, uh, was set up as fundamentally a nonprofit that's goal is to develop safe artificial general intelligence. And in this sense, something like a, you know, a, a, an AI that or artificial intelligence that has general capabilities, mm-hmm. maybe like an average coworker, maybe something more powerful than that. But fundamentally, it's the nonprofit board that oversees the for-profit side of OpenAI. And because the nonprofit board has a goal of safe AI or other issues that their mandate is concerned with, the profit motive doesn't drive them in a way that it drives many other firms. Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly why the board decided to remove Sam Altman, the former CEO of OpenAI. They did say he wasn't entirely candid in terms of his communications and they lost confidence in him. And then this this whole weekend of the the weekend of sort of the you know 1920-ish of November was just a flurry of confusion and drama. And as someone else said, it's like Kardashians for nerds. So um the, the main issue that we currently understand now is that the board has remained silent. They've appointed a new CEO. Uh, the Sam Oldman is now at Microsoft, along with Greg Brockman, who also resigned. And there's been a letter signed by, I think now, 700 of the 770 OpenAI employees saying the board should resign and Sam Oldman should be reinstated. So it's entirely possible by the time you hear this, that things have changed and Sam Altman is back with uh, OpenAI in some capacity, but the board, um, again, they don't have a responsibility to the shareholders in the same way. And they have responsibility to the company only in the sense of the mandate to make safe AI. Now, whether they've done the right thing or the wrong thing is, uh, you know, a lot of chatter about that on the internet, <laughs> but it's not clear because we don't have all the information. Um, one of the more puzzling pieces is Ilya Sutskiver who was one of the key figures here, who was one of the board members that had Sam Altman removed, also signed the letter that saying said the board should resign. (laughs) And this has kind of baffled everyone, where he seemed to be the driving force to get Altman out, and now he wants Altman to come back and reform the company, and it's really odd. So, um, yeah, there's a fog of war kind of thing going on here. Um, Who knows how it'll play out, but it certainly has been a wild ride. All right, cool. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe before we sort of jump into uh, your book and uh, AI, is it going to kill us all, or is it not going <laughs> to kill us all? What can we do just to 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 make sure it doesn't? Um, you are are you are you in Ottawa still? Yes, I'm in Ottawa. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm calling this my uh, my Canadian trilogy because you are the <laughs> my third. You are the Return of the King. Uh, oh, okay. version. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, you are the third Canadian I've had. I had uh, a author from uh, Toronto, uh, 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 Jeff Jeff Dupuy, and uh, then I had a. Um, uh, just kind of a listener UFO believer who became oh, yeah. a skeptic uh, from uh, Montreal, uh, uh, sort of the uh, um, the um, two solitudes, and uh, so uh, uh, Antoine Del Del, Del Bas had him on, uh, and 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 now you you're from Ottawa, so it's actually kind of Mon- you know Toronto Montreal Ottawa, kind of that little uh, you know yes. Ottawa. Well, I can I can add a little bit of breadth if you want. I was actually right. born in Vancouver, 
Oh, um, okay. Raised in Toronto and did do some schooling in Dalhousie and Halifax. And now I'm in Ottawa. Oh, okay. So you're kind of the everything bagel of Canada. That's <laughs> okay. That's I, I'll, I'll put that as a blurb on my book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But you, you, you work in Ottawa, you work for the government or uh, you're, you're you, I mean, you're not just like some schlep who wrote a, wrote a book about AI. <laughs> like, yeah. You, well, well, those are, those are two solitudes. So I'll okay. say while okay. I, while I do have experience in policy, I'm mainly here to talk either about my book or the reality check podcast okay yeah but but you i mean you you do have a background in this this uh um technology i, have a, I, I would say i have lots of experience taking complex ideas and trying okay. to make them accessible to different audiences okay i think that's true for the podcast as well as the work i've done which a lot of it really is when you're trying to write a book right you're trying right. to think well the book that i wrote which really is not for the technical expertise people, not for the people with even a heavy science background, for people who are looking at the news mm-hmm. wondering what the heck is going on with AI. Yeah, yeah. And this is meant to be a clear, compelling exploration of the power and peril of advanced AI and then what we can do about it. So it requires no background whatsoever. All the key terms are explained. I try to avoid jargon as much as possible. And in that way, all these years of trying to explain complex ideas to people who just don't have as much context or background has come in very handy. Right, okay. All right. And, and so so what, what is kind of the thrust of your book? Is it, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming it's not kind of a, um, uh, you know, everybody runs screaming, uh, you know, stock up on uh, toilet paper, AI is going to kill us all. But, but it's, uh, you know, um, AI could be good, but there are things we do want to look out for. Yes, I think that's, I try to take a, a measured approach. Mm-hmm. I am focused more on potential risks. And I think that's because good things kind of sell themselves, yeah. right? If, if something's really good, it kind of works out. Or I know there's enough uh, technology, technological evangelists that sell the good things no matter what. Yeah. So I kind of thought maybe there's a bit of a gap between how fast AI systems are advancing in capabilities and what the public's current understanding of them are. And in that sense, as you said, is it good or bad? Well, you know, AI, maybe maybe it's like like fire, right? But what kind of yeah. fire? Is it, a, is it a small fire? You know, with the right attention, we can use it for warmth. It can brighten our lives, you know, maybe even roast some marshmallows. But, you know, if you start pushing it, well, maybe there's a larger fire or a wildfire or something that's burning up way too much and we can't control it. And so I think that's a decent way to think about this, that currently AI systems are causing some harm, but not dramatic harm uh, in a global sense. But it is possible as they advance, uh, they can cause harm in a variety of ways because we aren't quite sure how to understand exactly why they're doing what they're doing or control them or align them with our values. You know, I uh, I, I think it's sort of, I sort of sent you a, a copy of a Toronto Sun column I did way back in the nineties. This is right when uh I think it was IBM Big Blue uh created a computer that sort of first time ever beat uh said Gary Kasparov. Yes, Gary Kasparov, the nineteen ninety five. Yeah, it was definitely in the nineties, sort of mid to late nineties. And uh and Back then, uh, even that was kind of caused shockwaves. It was sort of, you know, I mean, us people in the thinking professions, we just always assumed that, you know, uh, technology would be just ever more efficient tractors, you know, and, and, and people like us, we could never be replaced by machines. But it kind of was the first thing that kind of gave people some pause that, ooh, you know, if, if a computer can outthink a you know, the greatest, you know, chess player ever, uh, what 
as a coder, you know, mm-hmm. or as an engineer or as an artist, what, what, you know, how long before what can't it, it do? Right. Yeah. How long before it catches up to me? And, right. you know, and we're, we're kind of seeing that now, aren't we? Yes. And I think that's an interesting perspective because I, I find that people have, react to these things in a variety of ways. As we know, there's a wide range of people out there and they're going to react to things differently. So certainly for some people, when um, you know AI beat chess in the 90s, as you say, that was a big wake up call. And for other people, though, they go like, well, that doesn't really count, right? Because all this processing went into it. It's not how we do it. You know, not really. And then when AI beat Jeopardy in 2011, they were still kind of like, well, and then they keep, you know, people keep moving the goalposts, right? And for a long time, it was thought AI will never do any artistic stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Human creativity will be one of the last things AI is ever able to do. And it turns out, uh, not quite. Now, the process might not be the same, but the output sure is very, very comparable with the image generators like Dolly or Midjourney in the past couple of years have just exploded, not only in uh, availability, but also in capability. And in that sense, you get a greater glimpse of, okay, well, wait, um, how many other things are left for AI to do that humans can't, right? Or the other way around. And I do think... If you keep pushing it, um, it does become harder and harder to think of how this is going to go in the months, years, decades ahead. Now, for everything I say this evening, including this particular topic, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? There's not saying anything's definite. But if we look at the trend line, uh, there are going to be investments, more and more investments in AI. The computer chips they're using are becoming more powerful and new ones are being developed. So it seems reasonable that these systems will get more computational power, which usually leads them to be far more capable. And they have lots of data, and that allows them to have all these capabilities. Um, in the book, I really focus on, I'll say, the AI in an intellectual task sense, mm-hmm. not on robotics. And I think this is useful, not because you know robotics isn't interesting, because it really is. And there's also been tons of advances in robotics. But the robotics aspect will be just so much more difficult to implement. It's harder to get a sense of how. If you imagine you know, someone writing an essay about what a haircut is, AI can pretty much already do this. Now, to give you a haircut safely, reliably is very <laughs> difficult, right? <laughs> Similarly, like you're like, oh, well, why can't this AI, you know, take me salsa dancing? Like, well, that's a different type of request uh, or even making cookies um, than it is something like writing an essay or, you know, doing these things that humans would find very, very difficult. Write me a rhyming poem contrasting Star Trek and Star Wars in the style of Dr. Seuss, right? Actually, I think I did that on the reality check months and months ago when it first came out. And it just does it in seconds. And it's usually pretty good. And it shows an understanding of the material. So a human could come up with something like that, but they couldn't do it in seconds. Uh, And so I just think that's a useful division to sort of at least for this conversation to realize we're mostly talking about intellectual tasks or digital tasks or something you could almost see like a remote worker doing through an interface, not real world robotics. Um, As for, you know, where employment might go. Well, the long history is that whenever new jobs, sorry, whenever old jobs are kind of displaced technologically, new jobs seem to come on board. Mm. The famous example is, you know, in the 1790s, 2%, sorry, 90% of the US uh, population was involved in agriculture. Mm. And now it's 2%. And like, well, is that massive unemployment? And no, of course not. New other other jobs came on board, right? And even though population changed, uh, that still is a significant change. Now, the the question is, though, is it different this time? And in the past, uh, it does seem like people were able to go on to the next thing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, to be fair, uh, not everyone, like those Luddites, which are usually described negatively, they were correct. Many of them did lose their jobs and they did not do well. It's that the broader society sort of progressed 
from the British, you know, textile renovations or uh, revolution. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I, I tend to think, as you said, it's hard to see like, where are the new jobs coming right yeah. now at the moment, many countries don't have enough people. They don't have enough employment. And uh, you could imagine in the digital world, if people are willing to sort of spend more and more resources on digital goods, whether it's in the metaverse or things online, you can always sort of generate new types of jobs. But it does come to the point of like, well, why would you em- employ a human when an AI could do something similar? Yeah, I, I mean, the um, yeah, yeah, like it's at the like, you know, in like 1910, right? You know, maybe like 50% of the population was involved in agriculture. If you told someone, you know, standing in a farmer's field, you know, in 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 60, 70 years, you know, 90% of these jobs will be gone, right? You would just assume there's going to be massive unemployment. And you could, no one in 1910 could per- predict a job like social media manager, right? Like that's just, right, right. yeah. You social know. media influencer, it'd be ridiculous. It seems it, exactly or you think like you know like i mean you know we tend to think of say someone working at walmart as you know this is the worst possible job we can give human beings but if you can compare a walmart job to you know working in fields in 1910 and if you gave someone in 1910 the option to take the job at walmart where there's air conditioning and a lunchroom and you know breaks and vacation they would go this job is paradise so but but you know <laughs> or at least better yes yeah you yeah. don't usually realize just how bad the past is or quite frankly how bad or unfortunate other places on earth right now are uh, exactly who work in fields now who would love a north american walmart job exactly but at the same time right you know i mean um i mean we we, we always see with like like the stock market you know everyone's like no this time things are different and uh and and you know betting sometimes at this time things are different is uh a sucker bet but um yeah i mean i mean um, if you think about ai i mean right ai is not necessarily just a, a better tractor that you know makes more food for us and therefore uh, you know food is cheaper and then we can have other jobs but you know it, it's 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 replacing human minds, right? The the very minds that we're responsible for going, what now, what do we do with this excess? You know, uh, let's create social media marketing manager jobs. and Right. Well, I guess it, it really does depend sort of how this all plays out, right? As you said, they're, they're highly capable systems, but they're also, I guess we'll say, entrenched uh, structures and interests that will slow adoption. So right now, uh, there's many people that would like to become doctors and they can't because they don't get a license. And so similarly, you could imagine doctors, lawyers, maybe other guilds of certain types will restrict access and usage. Um, to your point, though, it does seem like um, sort of middle knowledge workers might be hollowed out in some way. Um, it is it is fascinating to see how it all might play out. Like I was thinking if someone is their future job going to be make like, you know, specialized clothing for pets and people will like, you know what, I want a human <laughs> to make my dog some cold clothing and that's what I want. It could be bespoke and human made and that might become right. a thing in the future. Um, I mean, this, 
this usually goes negatively in some sense because you imagine massive unemployment and it's bad. Uh, that said, if there is some sort of support of guaranteed annual income or something like this, it may not be so bad. But usually uh, with technology, various digital things come down in price. Mm-hmm. But it's not like rent and food are free all of a sudden. That's not that's not the world we live in. Yeah. So I think uh, employment concerns are definitely a big one. And I think it's prudent to have a series of kind of if-then scenarios. As you said, you don't want to bet on one thing or another, but like, okay, so if the world's going to go in a certain way, or if, say, a system in 2024, AI system in 2025 seems to be capable of doing X, Y, Z, like, what's the plan? Does someone have something on the books for how they plan to restructure society, which usually takes a long time uh, to do it relatively quickly so we don't have 20 or 30% unemployment within a year? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the um, You hear this term, the singularity, uh, all the, I mean, not not quite maybe as much in the past couple of years because it's almost like, you know, AI's here and versus like, you know, a few years ago, it was more theoretical and people are talking about the singularity. What What is the singularity? Ah, uh, yes. So I will talk about this, even though it is not mentioned in my book. Okay. <laughs> because, okay. No, no, I'm happy to. I just think that the average person, I wanted to have like as easy and as useful and as non-weird ideas as possible. Okay. okay. And for some people, singularity sounds too sci-fi. But in the in the short way of looking at this, the singularity comes from, loosely, the domain of physics. And in physics, a singularity is like the center of a black hole where there's so much mass and density and energy, it kind of just doesn't make sense anymore. It's like infinitely dense or infinitely energetic. And normal physics or normal ways Mm -hmm. we describe physics breaks down. So the singularity in the technological domain is something to the effect of technology is advancing so rapidly, so fast, that it comes to a point where you truly can't really predict or understand what's happening. I think Ray Kurzweil is one of the main proponents of this. He had a book, The Singularity is Near, back in, I think, 2005, 2006. Right, right. And he sort of thought, well, you know, AI will reach human level around 2029 and the singularity around 2045, which, you know, doesn't sound that bad for how he defined the terms. Um, now, certainly, this is a bit context dependent. A lot of people right now, at least when I was working on this book, I'm like, wow, something else happened in AI? Something new happened again? It's hard to understand the world, right. you know, yeah, 100 years ago, let alone right now. So I think it, it has a... Uh, for some people, a certain association to the rapture, right? And some tech people really do think, ah, yes, we'll have technological advancement to the point where I can be uploaded into uh, like a server in the cloud, or I can somehow live in a digital self forever. And for other people, it's just massive accelerating technological change. I think it is something worth thinking about in the broad sense, but for the book, it really was like, okay, so practically where we are right now and in the next several years, maybe even the next decade or so, what seems plausible? What should we be concerned about? What are the risks of AI? How might, how might we be able to address them? Oh yeah. So what, what, what do you see as the, the sort of the, the, the risks? Well, we have these systems that, you know, from the outside, you'd think, well, we're AI, these AI systems, there's humans that are making them. It's kind of like humans building a bridge or a car. (laughs) We know what all the pieces do when we put them together to make what we want. But with these AI systems, uh, this machine learning revolution, we were able to sort of figure out how to transfer the learning issue to the machines themselves. Mm -hmm. That by developing these systems, which some people say are more grown than they are built to give a sense of the organic nature of it, they're very, very complicated networks, which are inspired by the neural networks of the brain. Your brain has something like 100 billion neurons. These are brain cells that that they fire electrical activity, and that's how you think, feel, and initiate action. 
And so similarly with these computer systems, they're artificial neural networks where they have um, loosely similar properties of they get incoming signals and then they fire uh, other signals to other neurons, uh, artificial neurons. And by having a lot of these together with a huge network that's very complicated, it can process information. It could, say, recognize handwriting or process images. We could go into that a bit. It's it's relatively complicated because it involves you know math that most people don't want to talk about. Um, and I don't understand at a PhD level. But the gist is that by using a lot of math very fast and having these networks trained extensively over months on lots of data with lots of computational power, they can do fantastic things. Why I'm mentioning all that is that that means we don't fully understand why they do what they do. When these systems are uh, trained, they are trained extensively to try to do the right thing, so to speak. And they're fine-tuned when, you know, they spit out an output and they get a thumbs up or a thumbs down in a very loose sense. But as we've seen from different incidents over the past year, these systems can be hacked. They can be manipulated. You can ask the system to do something that it wasn't supposed to do, like say something, you know, sexist, racist, violent, give you instructions how to do something harmful. Uh, Meta was proud. I think that they were able to make their model relatively safe. And some group was able to spend, I think, about $200 worth of compute and make it unsafe just by undoing the safety measures. So that's sort of fundamental thing one, that these systems always have this little sort of this asterisk, this little percentage of we don't quite know exactly what it's doing. And with computer systems, um, it's sometimes useful to think of it as a a very uh, meticulous or pedantic lawyer or sometimes a kid who follows exactly what you said, but not what you meant. Um, So, you know, there's an example where they gave an algorithm the, 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 the goal of not losing at Tetris. Okay, the Tetris, the famous game, you know, blocks come from above right. in different shapes and you put it into a horizontal line and the lines disappear. You try to clear all the blocks. Well, the system just paused the game. Okay. Now, that's not what the researchers meant, right. but the system was told not to lose. So what if I just pause the game indefinitely? Like, oh, that's not, that's not really what I meant. Right. And so you get these situations where unless you're very, very careful, you might inadvertently give it an AI system the wrong instruction. Right. And there's numerous examples through human history with this. The, there's a, something even called the cobra effect. When the British ruled over India, they realized there were too many cobra snakes. And so they had a bounty for, uh, you know, cobra pelts, the heads of these snakes. And that worked for a while until people realized, well, wait, if I had more snakes, I could get more money. So they started breeding cobras. <laughs> and then the British realized, well, wait, this is making the whole thing worse. So then they stopped the program. And then once they stopped the program, the people thought, well, I don't need these snakes anymore. Then they released the snakes. So you had a system which seemed like uh, it was going to reduce the number of snakes, and it ended up creating more snakes. And so this is a perverse incentive, as they say, or a reward hacking in some way, where uh, these things are very difficult to um, make sure they don't happen and to take into account. And with AI systems that are very capable and very smart in some ways, um, but not necessarily in others, um, it may run the risk of uh, accidents in that sort of way. There's there's two other categories, but that was a long chunk there. So I'll put it back to you for a moment. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, um, you, you know, back in like the, uh, like the 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 eighties, uh, the it was the, the the fifth generation computer project. It was it was uh, the the Japanese were sort of big into this. The fifth generation computer project. You know, I, I mean, if you remember the eighties, it was like the Japan was sort of the predominant manufacturing technologically superior nation, and it 
they were just wiping the floor with the North American auto industry. And it just seemed like the Japanese could do anything. And then yes. they're like, we're going to build an intelligent computer. And it just seemed like, well, yeah, well, the, you know, 10 years from now, the Japanese are going to build an AI. They didn't. And the Japanese, the fifth generation computer project, although, I mean, I believe it, it had some, um, you know, breakthroughs. It didn't, and it might have been oversold by the popular press. It didn't. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere. And then, do you remember um, the emperor? The emperor's new mind. Yeah, Roger Penrose. Yeah, Roger Penrose. Like, to, to me, he's the, that book seemed because he basically was sort of arguing that you know the the human brain is basically you know works on this quantum level and it is so super special that you'll never be able to develop an AI system that mimics the human brain. So don't even try. Shut up. You know, go go, <laughs> go eat your marshmallows or something. So, uh, yes. and that, and that well, did seem to kind of kill the whole, at least the popular imagination. You know that, yeah. Well, Roger Penrose, he's smart. Well, guy. right. So you have an eminent physicist writing a very dense book, which yeah. admittedly I, I have not read the whole thing or even most of it. Uh, but yes, I do understand or believe that the case is he thought you know special aspects of human consciousness lie in the microtubules of yeah. the the brain, which are associated by quantum states. Therefore, X Y Z. Now. I don't think that really makes any sense given what we can see as capable. We don't need something to be exactly like the human mind. I think we just have to look at capabilities. That's to me the easiest way to look at it. And specifically, are these systems capable of causing harm? That's what people care about. So it could be the harm of a AI taking your job. could also be harm of it doing an accidental thing where there's some racial profiling mistake or some algorithmic bias where it turns out it's sexist or it doesn't hire the person in a fair manner or you don't get parole in a fair manner. But there are other more concerning risks where people will use these systems to cause harm. We've already seen this where uh, scammers are using AI technology to manipulate, uh, say, someone's grandparent. They voice clone the grandchild's voice, um, and then they call the grandparent or parent pretending to be the child using that voice, saying they need money immediately. And this has already worked and people have already suffered. Uh, the deep fake technology where you can basically simulate someone else and you can sort of stick someone's head on another person's body. This has been a problem uh, for many years in pornography, largely targeting famous women, but many other people. And that situation, because again, capabilities have increased, it's just gotten worse. Now I'm pretty sure we're at the stage where there's a website. You can take a photo of anyone you found on the internet and stick it on some uh, naked porn actor, or it yes. becomes even AI generated because we're almost at the point of generated video mm -hmm. that looks good enough to be realistic. Um, and again, because the technology is so good, a single photo can now seem like a 3D head that moves around. So the realism is increased. So these are like already uh, situations where AI is causing harm. And for the most part, this is not really being reined in. It's very hard to address because usually it's uh, in different countries or international issues in that, that regard. But there's other more dramatic ones that these systems could be used to generate biological weapons or really walk someone through the process of doing so. Right. Now, the, usually the, sometimes the counter is like, well, you can find some of this information on Google, right? You can just look it up. It's kind of the same thing, but it's not quite the same thing that anything that makes it easier to commit a crime probably increases the probability of that crime being committed. 
Now, not, you know, maybe like a ton uh, in terms of increase, but usually if things are easier to do, people will do them. And so while looking up something on Google is one thing, but if you can have a conversation with this, these AI language models, which you can, a back and forth, how would I do this? And what's the next step? And tell me in detail how to do this. And how would I plan this? And how might I pretend to look like I'm doing this so I can hide that I'm doing that? These systems can help with every step of the process. And in that sense, that's a, that's a dramatic concern. Uh, and those are just some examples of misuse, which is how I sort of see the next year or two in terms of primary concern before we get to the, what if the AI happens to take power or try to gain power for itself? Right. You know, um, the, uh, I mean, sort of back in the eighties, it was kind of, we call the expert systems, right? You were just kind of like hard coding and expertise where we've now kind of flipped it. You know, you, the, Mm -hmm. the machine kind of, you, you give it a whole lot of stuff and then the machine begins to sort of teach itself. And I mean, we're, we're st- there's still certain kind of a garbage in garbage out mm-hmm. uh, aspect. And, you know, so if you, you know, if you, you know, if, if you're the data you're giving it, it's like all white men, right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. then, then, it, you know, it's going to, it's going to then, have a, have a built in in bias. Um, I, I think of the the um, was it like like cameras that have like fake face recognition, but they're only kind of trained on you know white, white male subjects. faces, right? You know, and yeah. and yeah. and there are classic examples of like you know black people sort of going doesn't track me because it, you know no one sort of built it around that. Or I, I had a friend once who was working in the early nineties on uh, voice voice recognition, which was very primitive back then. But um, it, it was being there was being developed out of Dallas, and uh, and then they were doing kind of QA up here in Toronto, and it just it was just it was like the QA team was finding it was like getting like thirty percent accuracy. It was horrible, but he was achieving like eighty percent accuracy in his kind of testing. And mm. then they're like, "How you know what are you doing?" And he's like, "Yeah." It was developed in Dallas. So I just started speaking to it in a Southern accent. <laughs> and then that, that, that increased the, uh, you know, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know. Y'all want some AI accuracy? <laughs> exactly. Boom. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, what, what have you sort of found any uh, sort of real world examples of that kind of built in built in bias that might be uh... oh there's um there's numerous ones uh, unfortunately uh i think one of the more famous ones is uh, amazon used mm-hmm. an ai program to help screen resumes because they wanted to hire more engineers for their, right. for, their for their company and uh they did not code anything specific for the type of person they're looking for just kind of like well with a look at the, these are the engineers we already hired so clearly they were good people to hire so look at those resumes have that be your database that the system's trained on <laughs> and then sort through uh new resumes new potential hires and the system kept excluding women and they were looking into it and trying to figure out why and well it's because all the engineers were men right. they hired now, most uh, engineers don't say like, I'm a man in their resume, but either A, their name or B, just their um, groups and associations, the types of colleges they've gone to, mm-hmm. or whether uh, say on a woman's resume, she might be part of like a woman's soccer club mm-hmm. or a woman's book, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Those things ended up getting sort of downweighted. And eventually Amazon decided to scrap the project. Right. They they either couldn't or didn't decide it wasn't worth it to try to rehabilitate. 
Um, there's also a recent example where um, uh, an Asian American grad student uh, asked uh, an AI system to get uh, take her selfie photo that she gave the system and make it more professional for like a LinkedIn profile. Oh dear! <laughs> and it made it into a white girl. Yes. So, uh, and again, like the system, the system itself doesn't have preferences. It's not being so-called intentionally mm-hmm. racist. It just thought, well, mostly on LinkedIn, I see a certain type of photo. I'm pattern matching. I'm giving the system a lot of personal personality here, but it's just a, it's just a computer running through code. Um, and it tries to make A look more like B and that's what it did. Now that, as you said, is not representative, not what people want. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these systems are better than others. Imagine what you just might find on the internet. It might not be as comparable as one of these multi-million dollar or tens of million dollar system that are being developed and used right now. But yes, there's, there's numerous cases where for the most part, there's not an equal number of like everyone in the world in a certain place, right? So certain countries have more races or types of professions from, you know, legacy history, colonialism, whatever it is, that if there happens to be a country where there's say more uh, male doctors than female doctors and more female nurses than male nurses, and then you ask the system some information about doctors and nurses, you're probably going to get that bias. Now it is uh, somewhat sometimes statistically representative but that doesn't mean it's accurate in all cases. In fact, it means it's probably not, right? Yeah. That uh, the system might be even doing some loose math. We're like, well, even if it's say six out of 10 doctors are male, mm-hmm. you could say, well, okay, so then 40% of the time it should return female. But another way of looking at it is perhaps that every time it should guess male. Because right. like, if you're in a casino, you'd always guess on the 60%, right? You'd right. Yeah, of course. 40%. And these things can be tweaked and they, then they are. And this is where yeah. you try to fine tune the models. But yes, there's, there's numerous indications of uh, problems in this way because it's really hard to get enough representative data the more you drill down into certain categories. So yet yeah, more data, the better is the way of putting it. And so when you start to uh, break people down even further, which is what we want in this world to acknowledge that there are differences and even aspects of intersectionalities. But every time you add another, we'll say dimension to who someone is, and we're all multidimensional, you kind of shrink the data pool, right? So like, as you said, well, what is it? we're like, I'm a man, right? Well, I live in Ottawa. I'm a certain age. I do it there. And so the more you do this, the more and more you shrink it, which is fine for say authenticity, but since it reduces the data pool, it may uh, lose accuracy. And there's often these trade-offs that are almost inherent. Like usually you can't have both. (laughs) Depending on what you're trying to do, you sometimes have to make a trade-off between accuracy and certain aspects of fairness. And that's a big bitter pill to swallow. I I remember um, in the early early 80s mid 80s when, when word perfect was like the word processor of choice uh one of their big <laughs> one of their big innovations was uh adding a thesaurus to the to the software so Ooh. you so you kind of like highlight a word you know press you know the f12 function key and it will give you uh alternative words and so huge controversy uh if you ran a thesaurus on the word man it gave mm. you a you know, person human being you know, those sorts of things. You ran it on woman, it spit out dame, broad, bitch. Oh, you know? I see. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, so so in a way we have come a long way, even though not far enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. So so um, I I I I I hesitate to even do one today. You know, yeah, what would a thesaurus search on woman spit out, you know, on a on, mm. on a, yeah, but yeah, right. it, yeah, but again, it was just one of those sort of uh again, those weird little inherent biases. Or there was remember the case where um there there were not enough spacesuits for women on the International Space Station because they just kind of designed spacesuits for men's bodies and mm. 
and and then they they had to literally scrub you know a, a spacewalk because they're like oh they didn't have enough yeah, yeah that's that's that seems like a very saddening oversight it also seems um I don't want to say not new, not only with respect to women, but kind of in general, that people sometimes think things through and sometimes they don't. I think um, in the States, many of the cockpits that they had for pilots, or sorry, airplanes, <laughs> I should say, were designed for like the average sized pilot. Right. And of course, if you take a statistical average, uh, that makes some sense mathematically. But when you're talking about people, very few humans are truly statistically average, let alone many of them. So invariably, many humans, they have one arm that's slightly longer or one foot that's slightly bigger or some other difference in anomaly. So these uh, standardized cockpits weren't great for anyone because <laughs> almost no one actually fit them. And this is, of course, all men at the time. Yeah. And so soon after, I think, well, hopefully soon after, they realized, well, maybe we should make some adjustable knobs, <laughs> right? That you can move the seat a little bit, or you can move this even just a little bit, because of course people are different. Now, of course you can't have, you know, someone who's usually like six, seven, they might be uh, not so much an airline pilot, but maybe doing something else like playing basketball. Uh, but, or someone who's very, very short, like there are ranges that are going to be suitable for some professions more than others. But in that case, you just sort of think, yeah, someone thought, well, why don't we make it average? That makes sense. And of course it didn't make sense. And similarly, someone just wasn't thinking things through either in terms of, whether such uh, new suits were needed for uh, women or more of them, or even to um, acknowledge or understand that there weren't going to be enough because someone realized that we don't have it. So don't even plan the thing. Right. Right. The, the, um, one of the interesting things about sort of fiction is how kind kind of fiction kind of pre predates the technology becoming real. So, so before we came up with airplanes, we knew we were going to crack the secret of flight eventually. And then, uh, you know, fiction writers were writing a lot about, you know, air, you know, air aircraft, even though we had not yet created, you know, airplanes. And then obviously, you know, before we got into space, science fiction was talking about, you know, rockets to the moon, those sorts of things. And, and, before you know before the internet really became a thing like you know you had like um you know the whole cyberpunk thing like uh, um mm-hmm. william gibson and all, all those sorts of things and 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 now like i mean yeah i mean just every other day there's a new show on tv about ai and killer robots and and uh you know it is have you have you encountered any TV show or movie recently that you think does a very good job of tackling AI or. Oh, did you? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I'm just, sorry. <laughs> just <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I thought you were going to say something more. No, no. Yeah. I just okay. thought, thought maybe to say something else, but I'm like, yeah. All right, that's fine. Now. <laughs> so, so to the question of sci-fi, I guess I want to, I want to make a different point before I answer your question. I'll be blatant yeah. about it, which is that you're correct in history that people had, you know, some imagination, of course, and they tried to anticipate or, you know, Jules Verne, early things, um, imagine what could be. But at the same time, um, even experts found it very difficult to anticipate what could happen in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you a quote here from uh, Wilbur Wright, one of the White Wright brothers that discovered flight, or sorry, was one of the first flyers. I confess that in 1901, I said to my brother Orville that man would not fly for 50 years. So they flew in 1903. So here you have the one mm-hmm. of the people who was the original men to fly, and two years before it happened, he thought, eh, maybe it's 50 years away. 
And that just shows that dramatic change can happen even to people who are in the field at the forefront. And uh, my book opens with Ernest Rutherford, who is one of the foremost expert chemists and physicists in the entire world, who in 1933 thought the idea of getting energy from an atom would be ridiculous. It's moonshine. You just, you know, it makes no sense. And then less than 12 years later, we have atomic bombs being dropped on Japan and killing thousands and thousands of people. And so like, well, how could it be? How could someone be so wrong? Well, they usually underestimate how much change can happen and also how much harm could accompany that change. So that, that's, that, that point aside of just dramatic change can happen with the imagining of sci-fi and AI, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of taking a step back uh, perspective where to communicate that something could happen, one does not want to associate it with fictional ideas because then it might get dismissed. Oh, that's just science fiction, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's in your stories and your movies. At the same time, most of the science fiction has laid the groundwork, the intellectual or idea or imaginatory groundwork that is very useful to try to communicate what it could be like. And so when I, when, you know, if, when people talk about this stuff in popular culture or media and the news, you often see like a big Terminator robot head, right? <laughs> or something yeah. like this, a glowing red eyes. And my line is like, no, no, we're not talking about like the robots from the Terminator. Hmm. We're talking about Skynet from the movie, the Terminator. Hmm. So if you know your sci-fi Skynet was like the distributed neural network behind the scenes, directing all these things to happen and sort of turning humanity on us on itself first before it turns on humanity. And so I think it's better if someone pictures and it's hard because as a distributed system, it's sort of like, well, like imagine physically, what does the internet look like? That's not easy for most people to imagine. You get like lots of computers in a warehouse somewhere, right? Um, more so than robots. To, to uh, further address it, I think it's nice to kind of pull from different ones. I think the movie Her, which I think is 2013. Yeah, that was a good is, one. Yeah, is absolutely excellent. For those who haven't seen, I'm not going to spoil it. But in short, um, it's the future, near future, and people can have a sort of a chat bot in their ear, and they end up forming emotional attachments to it to some extent. <laughs> And that's just, that's just excellent, right? And then you can have the more dramatic, you know, Blade Runner or the recent remake and extension of Blade Runner of whether AI systems, uh, machines will sort of replace humans in certain ways and mm-hmm. leading to certain conflicts. Um, I certainly think, uh, of course, for many people, right, Star Trek, they're explored a lot of interesting, useful ideas, the character data, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, well, this is a sentient robot, especially that, you know, relatively famous scene where there's a trial and is he conscious? Is he not? Yeah. Can he think? Can he not? And so I think that stuff like that, with the TV show, sometimes you have more time to explore these things. It really gets to some deeper issues of like, what does it mean to be human? Why do we think this? Do we have good reasons? And I really hope um, humanity has more time to think about this because, you know, AI is coming in like a freight train and yeah. we like haven't really figured out aspects of ethics and philosophy and consciousness. Uh, for me, uh, Ex Machina is also a great movie yeah. that explores different aspects of like, well, what does it mean to to be to count right as a person? Is it and can a robot mimic a human enough? Is it sophisticated enough? Is it about planning? Is it about um, I don't understanding humor or even deception? And so, different people are going to feel differently. I generally sort of take the point of like, again, does this seem enough like a person that it can perform in similar capabilities? Right. I mean, your your example of um, um, uh, Orphan Wilbur Wright, the the uh, you know the first airplane. You know, um, if you look, sort of, you know, you went from you know Orphan Wilbur Wright, very first airplanes, and then within decades, you know, you had uh, you know seven oh sevens and things like that. And but if you look at you know, it was very 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 rapid. But I mean, a I like. 
and I'm just completely pulling this out of my butt, but I mean, you know, a, a 787 and a 707 are still, you know, fairly much Planes. the same kind of, <laughs> yeah, same kind of plane. Jet yes. engines, they do about the same speed. There's, there's, there's obviously refinements. You know, uh, um, you know, a, a triple seven or seven eighty seven probably burns a lot less fuel than a seven oh seven, right? You know, and it's much safer and those kinds of things. But you know, you know, a a a a seven oh seven next to a you know seven thirty seven, fairly indistinguishable from the seven oh seven next to you know the original Wilbur and Orville Wright flyer, right? Right, uh, and and uh, I, I think you know we are probably right now at that the the Orville and Wilbur Wright stage, but this could rapidly progress to the seven oh seven, not in decades, but in a decade what's your assessment of that so i think that is a useful comparator and it just sort of illustrates uh, how should we think about rapid change and what counts as rapid change right so if you take the really long view of like humanity the multiple millions of years mm-hmm. now you know modern humans i think depending on who you listen to 200 to 300,000 years old but if you go back to early humans we're in the 2 to 3 millions right and you have you know discovery of basic tools and then much more recently uh, a fire and then language and you know literacy and these sorts of things agriculture so in terms of that time scale, almost everything has happened in the past couple hundred years, mm-hmm. right? Now you could say, of course, the Egyptians and Romans and other cultures many thousands of years ago did quite a few things. And they certainly did. Even if we take that 10,000 years, that's a lot of change in a rapid period of time mm-hmm. on the scale of humanity or evolutionary time scales, right? You know, the earth is what, 4.5 billion years old. Life is about 4 billion. So um, I sort of think like, well, when you look at the scale of a decade, as you said, or two decades, it's almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that sense, it's useful to keep the larger forces at play. Uh, With change, I think a lot of change has happened in the past couple decades, even though some people think it hasn't, because certain things haven't changed that much, as Mm -hmm. you kind of indicated. It's mostly been a lot of change in the sort of technological, digital information age, right? And I still think it's absolutely remarkable that you can, you know, take a photo or a video with your phone, or, you know, we could be recording this using our phones, when in the past, of course, a phone was a completely different type of thing, right? You, You have this magical rectangle, which can connect you to different parts of the earth. And this is stunning. And it's so amazing. And yet, once we have it, we kind of take it for granted, right? Or we use it for, you know, looking at, well, cat videos are funny. I look at them too, so I shouldn't be <laughs> Perhaps we doom scroll and do other things that are far too uh, attention sapping. But I think so much radical change has happened, um, especially with AI in the past several years. It's hard to know just how much change will happen. And the, the book, the approach I take in the book is because we don't know so much, let's be cautious. Let's be prudent, right? Um we saw a big jump in capabilities from like GPT-3 and GPT-3.5 to GPT-4. And that happened over the course of kind of a year or two. <laughs> and it's sort of like, um, as I said, when you make these systems better, usually you put in more com- computational power and you put in more data and the algorithms, but you don't know like what amount yields what kind of improvement. We still don't like it's different if you're like, oh, we put in like, you know, five apples and we get 10x, right? Or something like that. It doesn't quite work that way. So there could be sort of discontinuous jumps in capability. That's a concern. But even if there weren't, the normal trajectory over the next two, three, five years is staggering capabilities. And in that sense, um, I think we really should be focused on what's going to happen in the next short little while and what can we do to ensure safe AI innovation. 
these things are very powerful and there's a lot of entrenched interest that will kind of just pursue the next new shiny thing because they want to make a product that again, people generally want, but they don't necessarily have safety in mind. And as you know, from many other things that we try to help or address in this world, from poverty to climate change to healthcare issues, they usually take years or decades to work or make progress on or figure out. And as such, even if one thinks this problem of AI being harmful is a decade or two away, we still have to start now. <laughs> if you think it's less than a decade away, or like I do, it, it's reasonable enough to be concerned that it might be, then we really have to start moving. All right. So I'm going to say, uh, do just plug in the three laws of robotics when we're done here. What's uh, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, that's chapter seven. So okay. <laughs> um, uh, basically in the book, um, I try to illustrate why these systems may not be aligned with our values and even like what those values might be, right? So you could imagine in one way, if we develop a perfect AI system that does what the user wants, well, different users want different things. And some of them want to cause harm or some people just have different preferences and that can lead to conflict. But before we get into something a bit more technical in the book, even though it's still not too technical, I wanted to look at Asimov's Laws of Robotics as a way to illustrate that simple rules to guide advanced systems just don't work. Okay. Asimov was great, right? He came up with these three laws of how to guide robots and they were great and brilliant as a science fiction device Mm -hmm. because he could generate stories. Because, you know, if a story works out perfectly, it's not that interesting. But if you have stories that have conflict or confusion or competing ideas, then then there's there's the narrative, right? There's the drama. And so you have basic laws. I won't run through all of them, but it's kind of like don't allow a human to come to harm or through inaction allow a human to come to harm and these sorts of things. But once you have stuff like that, don't allow a human to come to harm like all humans because a lot of people are suffering right now. Right. So um, am I supposed to like try to find people to save if they're in harm? And then that line of, I think this is the first law through inaction, meaning you can't stand there and do nothing if someone is being harmed. Like, okay, well, should, should a robot then like try to stop poverty? Should it try to cure cancer? Should it try to stop homicide? Like what, what exactly are the instructions here? How would this even work? It doesn't, it kind of breaks down immediately. Yeah. I mean, even uh, Asimov himself, I mean, he, he writes his three laws and then every one of his robotic stories are how robots route around those laws, you know? And, uh, oh, of course. So, yeah. Yes. So even Asimov sort of recognized them as like, you know, uh, you know, here, here's my box. Now, how do I, you know, think outside well, yes. of it? I, yeah. don't, I don't think you can churn out hundreds and hundreds of sci-fi novels if they're all perfectly <laughs> sensible. Like, and then they lived happily ever after once again, and no problems happened. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, you, you, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I definitely. I mean, I, I like your example of the um, uh, don't lose at Tetris, and and it, so it just put the game on pause. Whereas it's like, you know, okay launch all the nuclear weapons and wipe out humanity. And then nobody could beat me at Tetris now. You know I mean? You have right. to worry yes. about. Well, so hopefully it's not even that dramatic, but there are kind of a like, well, if I'm trying to achieve an objective, I have to, of course, exist. And even humans know this on a fundamental level. Yeah. All of us pretty much have the fundamental drive to exist. You don't think about it, but it guides and directs a lot of your action, you know, food, housing, warmth, shelter, all these things. And so with AI systems, you can think on some level, they'll think I need to exist. And how do I do that? Well, I need resources. I need to protect myself. I need these sorts of things. And this is where through almost like a a reasonable, rational series of moves and logic that an AI think, okay, maybe I do need to deceive humans. That that entity over there might risk turning me off, but I have 
haven't achieved my objective, right? Or I need more power or I need to manipulate people to achieve certain goals. Whether an AI can become like truly autonomous or self-aware, that seems possible. And I think that possibility is what should give us concern. I don't think we need to get into the, well, we know it can't happen or we know it can happen, but because it's plausible, again, rapid change can happen in a very short period of time. We need to act now. Do you, you remember the um, the game Eliza? The, uh, the chatbot from the 1967 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was yeah. it Weizenbaum? I think he was. Uh, Joseph Weizenbaum created the program Eliza, and then he detested it because he saw people were so easily fooled. Exactly. that that It, it was not meant to be a something to replace psychotherapy. He was just trying to like it – was, it was a proof of concept like, can computers process natural language in some fashion? And uh, and then he—it's based on kind of Rudgerian psychotherapy. You 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 have a degree in psychology, don't you? Yes, but not not clinical psychology. Okay. okay. Yes, that that model, that program, really yeah. just kind of yeah spit the stuff back to the the interlocutor, even the other person. So the person's like, "Well, I'm having this issue in my life." They might say, "And how does that make you feel?" Or exactly. tell me more about the issue. So it really was almost like a polite sounding board. And I think if I recall correctly, there's a story where his assistant wanted to keep interacting with the machine without him there because they just wanted more privacy. And he's like, oh, no, this is terrible. I don't I didn't mean to create this. Well, that was a thing that, that once yeah, once word got out that he invented a computer therapist, like people were begging him to spend time on the machine to to treat whatever mental illnesses they thought they had. Like it was mm-hmm. it became kind of. You know, it got weird quick, you know, <laughs> and 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 people are just willing to sort of spit out the most candid things to you know a command line prompt, and, and yeah, right. But you know, if again, if it's like there's no controls there, like what if Weizenbaum was recording all this stuff and then could use it as leverage, you know, for his next promotion you know or <laughs> right right to blackmail people well i yeah. think the the other point you mentioned is that people wanted to use it and that's something i explore in the book as well it's not that there's this sort of nefarious ai that's doing all these terrible mm-hmm. things it's that will want what the ai provides right now people like using their smartphones they like using the internet they like using social media they trade you know certain money attention and whatnot for yeah. the goods and services and benefits this stuff brings but we also know there's a lot of downsides. Social media isn't good for everyone. Some people become addicted. Some people become addicted to their phone. The internet has lots of problems associated with it. So we're going to, I mean, we're currently set to have AI systems as therapists, as assistants, as different financial advisors, as military strategies in government, everywhere else, uh, integrate AI systems more and more into our lives. And then once they're really integrated, it becomes very, very hard to shut them down or shut them off. Even what was it back in? Was it 1987? Was there was one of those, you know, Black Thursdays or something where it was? I think it was one of the first real, like, you know, huge stock market crashes based on, um, you know, computers doing the the trading. So you know, they, I mean, they're they're probably fairly simple models back then. You know, if X drops by 10%, right? Sell a lot more of this, you know, and, and they kind of then sort of discovered like, oh, you know, I, I think they started to implement what they call kind of like circuit breakers or something, you know, so, so these, these, these trade, what were then almost trading bots didn't, you know, 
you know, basically lead the world into the next Great Depression. But, <laughs> All in five minutes, yes. Well, yeah, exactly. Recently, it was what eight, ten years ago that flash crash that happened uh, in the stock market because oh, some right, algorithms yeah. reinforced each other. So that's a a bit of a more recent thing where clearly the the total problem wasn't solved because something similar happened yeah. again relatively recently. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, did, you ever, did you ever play the game of life where um, you know you, you kind of start on like a board and you 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 purposely you know put a few cells and that has very simple rules like oh, wait, wait Conway's game of life the computer yeah, digital yes. right yes not to be confused by the you know the, <laughs> the little board car. game yeah yes. exactly. I was like yeah. do you mean the board game or the other yeah. thing. Yeah. So, so just, yeah. So people at home, you measure a, a grid, right. Uh, uh, across the whole screen and you <laughs> click on little bars and you kind of turn these, well, little squares on or off, right. They're black yeah. or white. And depending on if there are on or off squares adjacent to the on or off square that you've clicked the next cycle of life. So to speak, the next iteration, these things then turn on or off. Right. Yeah. And I guess you're going to then say they can make certain patterns and it's quite interesting or where are we going to go with it? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I've always been fascinated by that in that you, you start with, you know, kind of your initial conditions. The, the idea is you, you kind of set up the initial condition. Like, you know, I'm going to make a pattern of cells, like, 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 like a cross shaped or, or a triangle and right. And then you turn it on and let it run based on very, very simple rules. And, and, and sometimes your colony just dies after 10 generations, but sometimes it just it, it's just run it just runs away and it it just it, it it's it will just infinitely create complexity and mm-hmm. it just goes crazy and and i always think of systems that way sometimes that that you know eventually <laughs> we are going to hit the the just the correct initial placement of cells then this system just takes off you know at, at a rapid crazy rate you know and and is is i mean is that an apt analogy for the, the danger of ai <laughs> i think i think again it's it's a very reasonable concern like we have enough data that makes that to me a very justifiable concern that there could be again some sort of discontinuity in terms of capabilities or even again normal trend line within 5 10 15 years and if people think well not that soon like well still if you think 20 or 30 years this is still going to be a problem we can still you know try to figure it out now and so it is entirely possible you could have sort of replicating entities that get away from us and don't have our interests at heart they don't have to be malicious they can be indifferent, right? As as people have said that, you know, if we're building a home or doing some construction, we usually don't think about ants. We just do what we're going to do and the ants suffer. Uh, and so when there's indifference from a very capable, intelligent entity, uh, harm can huck, can happen. And we have to be mindful of that. So I um, I think there could be like, you know, as some people say, an intelligence explosion. Uh, what you could say, aren't we witnessing that just on a smaller timescale or a longer timescale, depending on how you look at these things? Uh, again, the humanity's timescale is you could say we're going through a computational explosion right now it kind of feels a bit like we're starting to ride that exponential curve. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to say, right? Curves often level off uh, S curves they become, right? But we don't quite know. And again, that's, that uncertainty should give us pause and concern and thinking, well, why don't we make sure these things are safe before we deploy them? Why don't we put processes in place like a licensing regime, like having audits and valuations, like having some sense of who controls all these computer chips and whether they can build very, very capable systems to really make sure that we're going to have a safe and prosperous future. Yeah. I, I, in my 
professional career, there's at least at least two times where a new technology was introduced into the workplace uh, that kind of changed everything. And and the first one was the fax machine. Uh, you know, I mean, a fax machine initially was a pretty expensive hunk of uh, technology. And you really, as a company, you really had to, especially if you're a smaller company, you really had to think about why do we want to spend $2,000 on a fax machine? And you come up with all kinds of great ideas, what you're going to do with it. And then you get it. And everything you thought you were going to do with it, you, you end up not doing it. And but mm. you did, but it was still incredibly useful, and you use it for something else. And then the internet became a thing. And again, as a company, we're like, we'll do this and that and that, and that never happened. But again, the internet incredibly useful. So you you know you you you, you to to your point that you know right now let's let's come up with some really sober <laughs> ideas about how to handle this and what to do with it. But, you know, if, if history is any sort of example, um, you, you, what we think we're going to do with it and how we're going to control it just, it just seems naive. Is what? Well, I think, how do we, how think, do we write around that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're like almost the only thing we can do is try to have a, a various planning scenarios, right? We have to plan for multiple contingencies and eventualities. And while it all is often the case that you know people run around confused and people are reactive, right? It's it's much easier to focus on present problems because we know their problems versus future problems, which might be problems. But uh, and this is one of the examples I give in the book that it's December 2019, and all the predictions for what's going to happen in 2020, no one mentions COVID, no one mentions COVID 19, no one mentions a global pandemic. You have dedicated teams that are trying to anticipate economic, you know, financial, societal, technological trends, and no one mentions it at all. Now. Does that mean no one saw such a thing coming? Not really. We had various epidemiologists and health practitioners saying, look, it's a matter of if, right? Sort of matter, matter, sort of matter of when, when if yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to get something like a pandemic. We've had them before. There's reasons, again, reasons to think we're going to have them again. And in that sense, you could try to plan more, right? Pandemic mm -hmm. preparedness. And so similarly with AI, like, okay, well, the trend line indicates more capabilities. The possibility of harm, as I said, already we're having harm. Maybe we'll have more harms. We have world-renowned experts like Jeffrey Hinton, Joshua Bengio, and even the CEOs of leading AI companies saying mm. these things are very dangerous and they might even cause extinction. It seems absolutely ridiculous, but yes, we're in a world where the people who are building the thing say that their own product might kill everyone. Yeah. It's a very bizarre situation. So given that, I think everyone should realize what, what the stakes are, and they're exceptionally high. So what are we all doing here? And we should try to plan to ensure this does not happen. And exactly how to do that, sure, that's going to be difficult. Maybe we won't figure out. But the point is, we should try. Well, I remember um, reading about the history of the atomic bomb, and uh, there were there there were sort of what was, it, what was his name? Leo Salazar. I, I'm Leo really, Cislard. yep. Yeah, I'm really bit about, he was one of the very first people to figure out chain reaction, you know, and uh, him and I remember Enrico Fermi, I think, you know, they're mm -hmm. standing yep. on their balcony in New York and they, they kind of figured it out that, you know, you can, you can take a lump of uranium about the size of a baseball and they're looking at New York and they're just going, we could blow the city away. And, uh, and at, back then it was just, it was just people, you know, it was academics just kind of work on plodding along, working on it. And then that's when they sort of realized 
oh, oh geez, you know, pretty soon someone's going to f- be able to create something that could blow up a city. And and so they're like, okay, amateur hour is over. They, then they tried to get the U.S. government involved. They, they they went to the U.S. government to like like okay, guys, you got you got to do something about this. You just can't let us all muddle around and then blow up a city. So so they sent in an, an Enrico Fermi, and he eventually got to talk to some undersecretary assistant of the U.S. Navy. Like mm-hmm. he didn't get far enough, and 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 it, of course it was a very biased and racist time. And he just thought he was, and sorry, I'm going to use a derogatory term because this is what the guy called him. He just sort of said to like, just like some crazy day was his expression that, that he had some crazy egg mm-hmm. in his office talking about this, right? Didn't just totally brushed off. And then once they realized that they weren't being, you know, Enrico Fermi was a brilliant man, right? And won at least one Nobel prize. Um, oh yes. Yeah. And, and then they're like, Christ, okay. That's when they got Einstein. Like, okay, they will listen to Einstein. So you, this is why we all think Einstein has something to do with the atomic bomb. He was just the one that was able to kind of get the ear of the government going, dudes, you gotta take this seriously. So is well, yeah, but I, but in that case, Einstein asked them to take it seriously and build one to stop the Germans, right? So well, that's true too. Yeah. Well, the things going on here, right? There's one is that we got to make sure no one do, does this, but a lot of it was really the mobilization to get people yeah. to fund the enterprise to stop the Nazis, which you could say itself maybe made the world less safe because the Nazis weren't that far ahead. You know, hindsight's 2020. Uh, but yes, uh, Sislard figured it out uh, relatively quickly. Sometimes people say within a day, sometimes people say within a month, depending on what you look at from that quote that I mentioned before with Ernest Rutherford, because he heard Ernest Rutherford say like this thing is ridiculous and then within a very short period of time someone figured out the theory and that was Leo uh, but yes if you fast forward it becomes very complicated right because Einstein said we need to build a bomb and yeah. then later he's like that's a terrible idea Oppenheimer <laughs> of course helped build the whole thing right that was the overseeing of the project and then he regretted it yeah. and then you have Bertrand Russell at one point saying we really gotta nuke the Soviets and then becoming a lifelong pacifist almost before and after <laughs> so uh, it just shows how complicated this space is and with AI we might have you know, an individual at one point thinks the systems are safe and then they're not safe, then safe again. Hard to say, right? Yeah. But given all that uncertainty, again, we, we should really be careful with what we're doing here. And it's not science fiction. We already have powerful models. People have seen what they can do. So I think we really have to, uh, to take that into account. And if you're curious to learn more, you can buy my book on Amazon. <laughs> all right. Yeah. But yeah. On that, we should just wrap up. But yeah. So let's, yeah. So your, 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 your book, um, what the title of your book again? Uncontrollable uncontrollable colon Aaron McKee. Yeah. Well, the un- uncontrollable colon, the threat of artificial super intelligence and the race to save the world. By right. Aaron McKee. Yes. And I will definitely put on yrad.com forward slash CS. I will definitely put a link to your, uh, to your, to your book on Amazon, uh, the, the CA and the.com. If you were at points yes. beyond. Yes. You know, I think it's on a eight or 11 Amazon sites, but I okay. already right. mentioned the Canadian American listeners. Cause that's right. what we usually deal with, but are, are you like me? Did you go the self publish route for this? I did. I did. And I was exploring the conventional route, but mm-hmm. you know, it's almost a, a on point, not ironic that AI is moving so fast. Uh, conventional publishing would have had this book come out in 2025. 
which is ridiculous in the AI space, right? So much has happened in the past year. It's dramatic, let alone that weekend we just saw with open AI. <laughs> so I yeah. realized very quickly, like, okay, the time is now, the issue is now there's an urgency to it. And especially because the very end of the book does like, what can we do? And there are some policy proposals. If those had to wait a year, a year and a half, I just don't think it would be as useful or as impactful. So I, I started in June, 2022, uh, before right. the world kind of was uh, waking up to this AI issue. Right. And then in March, I thought, okay, this now has to come out as soon as possible, March 2023. And I've just been scurrying and having an arduous journey over these past seven <laughs> months to get it out as soon as possible for you, dear listener. <laughs> you know, when I were working on my second book, uh, cons- cons- the Conspiracy Skeptics book list, also available on Amazon, um, the uh, Queen, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth was still alive. And, and a more mm-hmm. minor thing. Prigozhin was still alive. And right. you could believe a book about conspiracies probably does mention Queen Elizabeth uh, several times. Sure. Of course, as if she's still alive. And then she goes <laughs> in up and dies. <laughs> and I'm like, that was that was the real conspiracy to make your book seem out of date. I know. So now I got to go back and like, how do I rewrite this? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. So, so earlier in my book, I mentioned Sam Altman as the CEO of OpenAI. I and know like, this. Ju- this was just true. And then, like, well, I could possibly change it to former, but because I know by the time this podcast comes out, but while we're recording it, there's a possibility he comes back. I'm like, I guess I have to wait and see. That's exactly. how ridiculous this space exactly. is. And same thing with Prigozhin, the uh, Wagner, the Wagner guy. Mm-hmm. Again, he he dies, and I got to go right rewrite my little blurb about Wagner and yes every author's dream to rewrite a book forever yeah but i mean i will say the nice thing though about um amazon self-publishing is Mm -hmm. when you i mean i i I would not go back and change i mean unless there was something so grievously wrong that you know it's getting me sued i i wouldn't go and rewrite my book substantially but but it's nice you can kind of go back and tweak things like you know this guy has died in the you know and just now you know stop talking about in the present tense put them in past tense and yeah you can go and re-edit your 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 manuscript and especially how did you get it edited did you edit it yourself did you pay somebody to edit it i had some help i edited it myself i had some volunteer help and i had some paid help okay all right yeah it's certainly an arduous process for sure though because yeah because my book is purely i mean if you were to professionally edit a book you're probably going to spend what you're going to make on the book on editing, you know, it's, uh, Oh yeah. Well, this was never a, a money-making venture. I mean, that'd be nice, but I'm just like, I'm really concerned about the AI issue and I want yeah. people to have an understanding of what's going on. Exactly. So, yeah. So I, I mean, I was just, I just purely self-edited and then, uh, yeah. And, but once you publish, I like, I am still now, I, I go through my book again and now find more typos and little things right, here. Right, right. And then, so, so I, you know, I have a little versioning number. If you kind of buy my book, you'll see, if you see oh, yes. like, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, like, you know, 1.8 or, you know, yes. 1.11, that means you're, 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 you're looking at the, the 11th time I've been over this book and fixed typos. Right. <laughs> so, as long as it's not 57.2 and you're like, okay, yeah, well, that's exactly. So, <laughs> so, that's so yeah, so that's, yeah, that's what a nice thing too, is you can kind of just, you can just re up your manuscript. And uh, if you, if you find like little typos or something like that, that's, that's, that's cool. Well, I want to say thanks so much for having me. 
All right. Yeah. Well, thank, thank, thank you, Darren. And uh, yeah, so I will, I will, uh, yeah, so check, check the uh, website, my website for, for, for the link to your, your book on your book on Amazon and, uh, and congratulations on sort of, sort of hitting number one in, in, in a few yes. categories. That's always, <laughs> that's always fun. Yes, it is. Well, thank you so much and uh, have yourself a great night. All right. Bye-bye, Darren. Thank you. Bye. Cheers.